0: In 1953, in Paris, France, a man named Samuel Beckett, an Irish playwright, premiered perhaps one of the most important and remarkable plays of the 20th century. Maybe you've heard of it. It was called Waiting for Godot. The play is about two men who, when the curtains open, are sitting on a stage by a roadside with one solitary scraggly tree. And they're dressed in in, in rags, giving the appearance that maybe they're homeless men. And what they're doing is waiting for Godot. But Godot is someone who never comes. So who is this Godot? Well, in French, there's a little bit of wordplay going on in the title. See, the word God is there, G-O-D, but at the end, Beckett adds the letters O-T, which in French, it's a name, Godot could be a name, but it also could be a suffix to indicate something kind of small and charming. So in other words, what he's, he's really writing about in this play is not just about these two scraggly men waiting for somebody named Godot. They're waiting for somebody who is God. But not God as we know him a kind of quaint and charming, maybe an sort of out-of-date idea of who God is. And so he's, he's a little tongue-in-cheek about this. But neither God nor his symbolic counterpart, Godot, ever arrive on the scene. And it begs the question for the viewer, is God real? Or is he just some small, quaint idea a little religious comfort that we've added into our culture, but is ultimately meaningless. Somebody that we spend our whole lives hoping for and waiting on, but who will never arrive for us. By the end of the play, these characters have done nothing but wait. But finally, in the end, they begin to despair because night is approaching and Godot has still not arrived. And so these two have one last back and forth with each other. Let's go, the one says. Well, I can't go on like this. We'll hang ourselves tomorrow. Well, that is unless Godot comes. And if he comes, we'll be saved. Then let's go. They don't move, but the curtain closes. And they're still waiting on Godot. And I think Beckett is implying perhaps we're still waiting on God who will never arrive. But Christian, maybe that scene seems a little too familiar and a little too uncomfortable to you. Because perhaps in your life, you find yourself asking the same question that the false teachers and the skeptics posed in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. But where is this coming that he's promised? You know, as our world spins on and as our society erodes and as our institutions collapse and as a pandemic spreads and as old age sets in, as families are torn apart, as suffering only increases, perhaps we ask this very same question. Where is Godot? Where is God? Do you ever feel like you're just waiting for God? Waiting for someone that may never come? Well, friends, that may be the cynical view of existentialist playwrights, but that is not the apocalyptic view of eyewitness apostles. Where Samuel Beckett kind of cynically shrugs his shoulders and tells us that we're waiting for nothing, the apostle Peter embraces us instead, assuring us that we are waiting for true and final vindication. But waiting, contrary to what we might assume, and contrary to how we often talk about waiting, doesn't simply mean sitting on your hands and passively watching the world go by, watching everything around you implode. That's not what Peter is getting at with waiting. No, Christian, because Jesus has been raised from the dead. All things are now possible in Him, therefore none of us are to passively wait for His coming. Actively waiting on Him means that we wait with faith and we wait with obedience, defying fear and hatred and pride. Christ has conquered. The gates of hell will not prevail against His church even when it feels like that's what's going to happen. Anything and everything you now do, anything and everything you now do, can bring glory to God and bring good to a world that's not waiting, Peter tells us, for total destruction, but's waiting for complete redemption. It'll go through a purging fire, but like a precious metal, will be more precious and brilliant and extravagant on the other side. To live like this, to wait like this, To have faith and obedience like this is to hasten the day of His return. And folks, the subtitle of our 2 Peter series has been Sharing in God's Life. What's that all about? Sharing in God's life. Because we talked a lot about avoiding the division and deception of the false teachers of the world, but let's finally dig into this sharing in God's life part. What does that mean for Christians to share in God's power and His glory, His life and His kingdom, His reconciliation and resurrection? And Peter gets at that here this morning. You know, last week we touched on a cosmological mystery that we can only faintly grasp at as limited human beings. The day of the Lord. It's a time and when God will physically and some way intervene in this world. He will bring everything under His righteous judgment. He'll bring all evil, even evil that we think we have swept under the rug, He'll bring that even to justice. What that will actually be like though, that's a whole other story. We can hardly tell. Even Peter himself strains at putting it into language that even his own generation could understand. And we, so far removed from his Context, it, it's even harder for us perhaps sometimes. But the best signal that he can give us is pointing back to Genesis, you remember. God once judged the world through flood water. The world was functionally decreated. The flood waters that God parted in Genesis 1 came crashing back down on us, hurtling everyone under them into death and back into chaos. That's how God has dealt with the world before. And He'll deal with the world again in a similar fashion, except this time we read through a universal fire. One that is so powerful, it simultaneously destroys all evil, but renews all creation. What that means, though, what it will look like when the skies and the heavens catch fire, when the spirits and the elements implode, when everything that's ever been done will be revealed and exposed, what that looks like, nobody truly knows. Anybody that says they do, I believe, is lying to you. We don't really know what that will look like. We simply have to trust that as God has been at work in this world in the past, so will He be at work in this world in the future. And whether we like it or not, the day of the Lord is happening. It's coming. It's on its way. But through it, God will make all bad things right. And He will make all good things new. See, is that wonderful? Isn't that why we call it good news? I think so often our imagination of God and His judgment, we we buy into the sort of, cultural fabrications that God is an angry, mean, old, bitter man with a white beard down to his knees, and he can't wait to throw hellfire and brimstone at us. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. His judgment comes because there's evil in this world, and when you're a victim of evil, you better believe you want things set right. He'll set those things right, but even greater than that, he'll make all things graciously new. See, there's a lot of things we love in this life. Wonderful, good things that God gave and made and called good for His glory and for our good. He made the skies and the seas. He made the plants and vegetation. He made animals and people and He told us to go and make something of this world. Do everything to His glory. All those things that God called good, Paul says in Romans, those things are groaning. The creation collectively is groaning to be set free from its bondage to decay and death. God didn't make things to be given over to decay and death. That was our human innovation to introduce sin and hell and death into this world. But God made it rather to be gloriously and eternally free by the power of His resurrection. And one day, when this day of the Lord comes, it'll be frightening to the evildoers of the world. But it will be a welcome sight to us weary exiles waiting for new bodies, a a, a new planet, renewed relationships with one another. No barrier of, of sin and separation between us and God Almighty anymore. And so in verse 11, Peter says, since all these things are inevitably, going to be dissolved in this way. Since all of this is going to happen, it's imminent, then what? It's clear, Peter says, what kind of people you should be in holy conduct and in godliness. It's not hidden or obscure. Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? It's right here. Holy conduct and godliness. The world as we know it, this world we're desperately so trying to legislate into the new heavens and the new earth, and failing all the way there, this world is ending. Our empires are ending, and thank God for that. Quite a mess we've made, haven't we? So how are we to respond that we see that this, this world is in such unbelievable travails? Are we just to live it up for ourselves? Are we to hoard our stuff and despise our neighbors? Are we to be ruled by fear of one another? Are we to be ruled by hatred of people across the street from us that think differently, vote differently, came from a different nation, speak differently? Is that the kind of people that God calls us to be? No, we're to be a people of holy conduct and of godliness. See, in the language of Peter's day, he pluralizes these things. He says that we are to be people of holy conducts and godlinesses. Now that might sound funny, but I think what he's saying is this, essentially. Folks, there is a lot of holy things and godly things that we can be about. We can't do everything, but there's a lot of different ways for us to practice holiness. There's a lot of different ways for us to live out godliness. And so, Christian, Peter tells you, while you're waiting for God to come and finally make all things new, don't waste your waiting. Don't sit on your hands passively, watching the world go to hell in a handbasket. That's not what God has given you to do. God has given you to pursue holiness and godliness. What does that look like? That means that you choose to do something for God's glory, for the good of your neighbor, instead of just sitting by and saying, well, God will handle that. We're big believers in sovereignty in this church, but in God's sovereignty, He has appointed us to carry out His mission. What did He say to the disciples? Go into the nations and have a great vacation, sightsee. Put your feet up and wait for me to come back and make all things new? No, he told him to go get to work, guys. The battle is done. Sin is defeated. Satan is chained. You are free to go in my name and preach this Gospel. I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at the world and think, what could I do about this mess? Well, I'll just stay home and lock my doors and close the blinds and hope nobody comes my way. But that's not what God would have us to do. But maybe you're like me. You need concrete examples. What is holiness? What is godliness? Lord, help me understand. Give me examples of that. Peter's a step ahead of you. He's got you covered here. In his first letter, he tells us that holiness and godliness look like these things. These are things we talked about in 1 Peter Growing in your own sanctification. Growing in your personal holiness. Your rejection of sin. And your devotion to Christ. That's one way you can do it. You don't even have to get anybody involved with that. That's something you can do on your own. Showing sincere love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Boy, this world is desperate to get us to hate each other. It is desperate to get us to turn on each other. Don't do it, folks. Love and forgive each other. It's okay that we think differently and we act differently we have different methodologies about how we live our lives. Don't let the world tear you apart from one another. Show a sincere love for brothers and sisters in Christ. How else? This one's a tough one. You want to be holy? You want to be godly? Be subject to the temporary authorities that God puts in your life. Listen to people that God puts over you. Try to, you know, when, when God took Daniel and his friends and put them in Babylon, He told them to go about pursuing the good of that wicked city. Babylon, the archetype of evil. God says, be good to Babylon. Because that's how God's people are, even to evil people. We're good to them. Folks, there's a lot of evil authorities in this world. There's a lot of evil institutions. There's a lot of evil powers in this world. So far as you can, seek the good of even those enemies. Resist sin, but pursue their good. How else? This one's a tough one. Willingly embrace suffering for the Gospel. I know we have a persecution complex in this country. A big time. Oh, you know, God's Not Dead 4 or 5 or whatever is coming out now. Just another movie about, oh, how tough we have it here. Uh, the, The Society doesn't worship the ground that Christians walk on. We're so persecuted. Do you know that pastors in Afghanistan right now are begging for us to stop for five minutes and pray for them? Whatever you make of the political mess over there, I don't care. Those people are suffering. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, pray that we'll be strong. That when heads start to roll, we'll still praise Jesus with our lips. That's godliness. That's holiness. That's well, you know, oh you know, they're not playing Christian music on the radio anymore and uh, they don't have prayer in schools. I, I know a lot of Christians that don't show up to prayer meetings in their own churches. None of us dive headlong into suffering. None of us are sadomasochists. We're not going out looking for someone to crush our skulls. But when suffering comes, don't puff your chest out and talk about your rights. Count yourself blessed that God would see you worthy to suffer for the Gospel. That was the viewpoint of the apostles. A damning word I've heard from an American evangelical theologian recently. He says, perhaps we go through so little suffering here in the United States, so little persecution, because God doesn't yet count this church worthy of suffering. He's giving that honor to people that pursue holiness and godliness and China and Afghanistan and Nigeria. And finally, actively choose to love and serve in your local congregation. I know I'm biased because I'm a pastor of a local church. But friends, I can tell you, you will spend no better time during your week. There will be no more important tasks than you can do than to come routinely and regularly to worship with God's people at this church to show up when you can. Make the decision today that you will be here when you can be here. Not based on how you're feeling. You're kidding yourself if you think I always want to be in this pulpit. You're kidding yourself if you think I always want to come to everything. I'm just like you. Boy, I wake up some mornings and think, wouldn't it be so great to just go into the living room with a cup of coffee and a cat and and just kick my feet up with a with a a good mystery novel. There is no better way to actively wait on God than to faithfully come and worship with God's people. Bear witness to this world that the free market doesn't have your heart. That Capitol Hill doesn't have your heart. That Silicon Valley doesn't have your heart. But Jesus has your heart. That's where your loyalty is. That's where your love is. It's with God and His people. Older folks, do you want to know how you can spend your retirement? There you have it right there. Young people, do you want to know how you can spend the rest of your days finding purpose and meaning in your life? Well, here it is. God didn't save you to live just for leisure. He saved you to live for His love. He didn't save you and redeem you to live for stuff. He redeemed you to love and serve other people. We all have a consumer mindset in this country. The big flashy things that we see, the the new iPhones, the new TVs, the campers, the vacation spots, that has a big pull on our hearts. But folks, make that bottom of the list when it comes to your walk with the Lord and His people. I've talked to a lot of you, and I think you've, some of you made the wise decision, I'm not even watching the news anymore. It makes me angry and sad, and it distracts me from my walk with the Lord. God bless you in that decision. I know it's easy to want to distract ourselves away from a world that we see is on fire, but folks, don't let that distract you from the mission of God. Jesus Himself, the creator of humanity, the one that designed our brains and how they work, our hearts and how they desire. He said to us, It's better to give than to receive. Americans are top of the list receivers. We like to take stuff, but the church is called to be givers. And folks, here's the beautiful here's the beauty of it. The Lord has created us to have joy and fulfillment. In giving. That's what we were created to be. This is how we're supposed to function. We run smoothly when we're givers, but we break down when we're takers only. That corrodes your soul. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be satisfied? Do you want to feel like when you wake up in the morning that those new mercies are real? Christian, become like Jesus who loves and serves and gives. If your life lacks contentment and direction, if it feels like it's missing joy and fulfillment, perhaps you are working against your own divine design. Perhaps this is God's way, His patience with you of showing you living for yourself. Living with yourself as your own God is a miserable thing to do. We're all poor gods. But the God who made us and the God who sees us at our worst and the God who redeems us out of that, that's a good God. The things He says are true and good and beautiful. But folks, I'm not insensitive to people's situations. I don't want you to think that about me. I believe clinical depression is real. Physical pain is a, is a difficulty for us. We have to deal with, with the, the burden and the burnout from work. We have to deal with all the psychological traumas. I get it. Those things deserve to be taken and treated seriously. I'm not making light of that. But I want you to ask God if your life feels spiritually stagnant. Friend, I ask you to do this one simple thing. To take the courageous step of faith and believe that a life of holiness and godliness is worth it. Giving and loving and serving more, not less. That's where you find true freedom. We talk about, I hear freedom all the time. Freedom to do what? It's no real freedom if it's freedom for nothing. It's freedom if it's freedom to love God and love people. That's freedom. Hallelujah. Contrast that to this present world that we're in, folks, where all we hear are wars, rumors of wars. All we see are earthquakes and famines and hurricanes and wildfires. All that we experience in this life, it seems like, is surging pandemics and racial violence and economic poverty and political disaster. That's what this world has for you. But the good news that Jesus gives you from the Gospel of Matthew is that these things are signs that something better is coming. They're birth pains, they're pains. But they're pains that give way to new life. The things we feel right now are the last gasps of sin and hell and death, the last hold that it'll ever have over us. Because our world will be resurrected from the ashes. And out of that cosmic fire of the day of the Lord, we will see things made new. Jesus is on His way, folks. He's coming to save us out of this. So Peter says, as you wait for that day, as you wait in that way for that day, you hasten His coming. Did you hear that? As you wait in this way, you hasten His coming as you live godly lives of repentance, as you pursue holy lives of benevolence, you, Christian, you, church, hasten the coming day of the Lord. Church, the Lord in His sovereign wisdom gave us the holy and heavy responsibility to hasten His coming into this world. Why He would do that, how He does that, is a mystery beyond me. But Maranatha, the reality is as as small and as sickly and as frail as we may be in our frame, God has chosen and called even us this very day to hasten His coming. Are you sick and tired of seeing this world the way it is? You can help to free people from the power of sin and death and despair and sorrow by living godly and holy lives. Forgiving people when they hurt you. Helping people when they need you. And giving them Jesus when they have nothing. You want power? You want purpose? There it is. Peter tells us in verses 12 and 13, while the day of the Lord approaches, when the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat, based on His promise, we actively wait. With faith in Christ and obedience to his law of love for these new heavens and this new earth where righteousness and justice and glory and peace dwell. That's why it's important, church, for you to show up here on Sunday. That's why it's important, church, for you to give to that person that asks you for help. That's why it's important that you spend time praying for people. That's why it's important that you read the Scriptures and get to know this wonderful God so you can be so transformed by the Christ you encounter there that this becomes second nature to you. Church, God has given this congregation of all people, believe it or not, here in little... Backwater, Lilburn, Georgia. He's given this church authority to hasten the return of God into this world by living like and for and by and through and with Jesus. So that in the end, when people look at Maranatha Baptist Church, even our enemies can't do anything but praise God. That's my vision for this church. I want us to grow, I want us to minister. I'd love for us to have more programs. More services. But the thing I want for you and myself and us together is to become this kind of people that love and serve and give so that no one can say an ill word about this church. Even the ones that hate it. And so Peter concludes in verses 14 and 15, Dear friends, beloved, while you wait for these things and in this way, make every effort to do so try your best to live without spot and blemish in His sight and at peace. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. Friends, while you're waiting for God, while you're striving to be holy and godly by choosing grace and goodness, Peter also hopes that you reject Sin, you reject temptation. Now remember, the Apostle John tells us that anybody that says he has no sin deceives himself. So what is is Peter talking about here? Having no spot or blemish. Is he so naive as to think that we could possibly be morally perfect? That we could get to a place where we're we're without sin? No, that's not what Peter's getting at here. And we have to remember all the way back in chapter 2, in verse 13, Peter said that the false teachers of his day were spots and blemishes on the reputation of the church. How so? How were false teachers spots and blemishes? They were deceiving people. They were uh, causing division. They were living debaucherously. That's how they were spots and blemishes on the reputation of the Gospel. But by contrast, Christian. We're not to show our own spotlessness and our own blemishlessness. We're not going to be those kind of people. See, that's what false teachers are about. Look at my reputation. Look what I can offer. Look at all these things as spots and blemishes. No, we're not supposed to offer up our own, but instead, what I think Peter is drawing us to, as Christians, we are to show Christ's spotlessness and blemishlessness. In the Old Testament, you remember, when a, when a lamb had to be offered for an atoning sacrifice, they had to choose a spotless, blemishless, perfect specimen. And that's what Jesus is for us. That's not what we are. That's not what we can be. But that's what Jesus has been for us. So Peter is saying here that if you want to, 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 to make every effort to live this way, you have to live according to and by and for And through Jesus, that's your only hope in this world. All these things, to live holy and godly, to love, to forgive, to serve, to be generous, all those things you can only do if Jesus is working that out in you. But what happens when that lamb is sacrificed? It brings peace between God and man. When we live in Jesus, it brings peace between ourselves and to the others around us. And as we actively wait and live only in Him, we can be a people of peace. See, ungodly secular people and unholy religious people love to stir up strife and division. They love to expose their blots and their blemishes. But Christians, be holy and godly and therefore usher in peace where there is none. Ignore any politician or preacher that always wants you to fight or debate or quarrel with your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the worst things that has come out of uh, the Reformed-leaning Christians is their argumentativeness. Folks, as, as people that embrace the 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 beautiful truths of the Protestant Reformation that we don't believe were uh, um, innovations. They were going back to the basics of the early church, of the New Testament church. As As we believe those things and we adhere to those things, when we talk about God's grace and His sovereignty, talk about it with humility. Some pastors need to hear in this day and age that Paul says in his pastoral letters To be quarrelsome is a disqualifier for ministry. Christian, quit quarreling with people all the time. What good has it ever done you? Has it ever brought you closer to Christ or one another when you're fighting with people all the time? In person or online? Not a single time. Instead, remember how God, who could quarrel with you in your behavior, has been patient. And that is your salvation. Be patient with each other. God's not finished working on any of us yet. Be patient with me as I'll try to be patient with you and with one another. God is so patient with us, church. His heart is for us even when we're selfish and bitter and ignorant and mean-spirited. And when we become more and more like Him and when we show His glory and not our own glory we can be that way too where we can be sincerely loving and forgiving and so finally peter corroborates all of this stuff by saying hey you don't believe me go read paul and many people have pointed out how funny this is in verse 16 and peter says and a lot of it is is hard to understand peter says that i think we should be patient with ourselves when we study these books of the bible and say what does that mean hey if the apostles didn't know goodness gracious but he's right, folks. Paul may be hard to understand and the Bible may be hard to understand, but living your life of holiness and godliness and, and, and thinking on them and plumbing the depths and the riches of the Scriptures is worth every second, every iota of energy you expend on. it. Because waiting for Godot and more importantly waiting for God is not Easy. And Peter tells us, the sad reality is, and we see this all the time, we've experienced this in our lives, the untaught and the unstable. Boy, there's a lot of unstable people these days. They both twist these letters to their own destruction as they do with the rest of the Scriptures. Folks, whether it's playwrights or politicians or God forbid, even preachers, that tell you that waiting on God is pointless That they try to scare and outrage you. They try to tell you to hate and attack and take back what's yours. Ignore that. Instead, do this. Live a life of holy conduct. Live a life of godliness. Live a life of peace. Because that will hasten the return of the Lord. And only He can set things right. His kingdom is on its way. We actively wait for His appearing. But when it appears, His will will finally be done on this miserable old earth that He will make new as it already is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, it's not easy for us to wait on You but You patiently wait on us. So help us by Your Spirit to love graciously, to serve generously, and to live peacefully. Make these things a blessing to our community and a witness for Your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.